it may be more difficult during a very, very busy season. And so the timing and the placement of it is going to be even more of a challenge. But Catch Can's up to the challenge, and I believe that we can manage that. Tonight on the KRVD Evening Report, Royal Caribbean's Ovation of the Seas made her inaugural stop and only visit to Ketchikan this summer, and the filing period for Ketchikan municipal elections just opened, and several candidates have already turned in their applications. Those stories and more coming up. First, a look at the local weather. Cloudy skies tonight with a slight chance of rain. Lows in the mid-50s, south winds to 10 miles per hour. Rain is likely Tuesday with highs in the mid-60s, south winds to 15 miles per hour. Rain heavy at times Tuesday night, lows around 60 degrees, east winds to 15 miles per hour. Rain heavy at times Wednesday, highs around 60 degrees, east winds to 15 miles per hour. Rain likely Wednesday night, lows around 60 degrees and light winds. You're listening to the KRBD Evening Report. I'm your host, Maria Dudzak. For the first time ever, the largest cruise ship to visit Alaska has made its way to Ketchikan. As KRBD's Molly Lubers reports, the city had to put in a lot of work to host a ship of that size. The ovation of the sea ship loomed over downtown Ketchikan when it docked at berths 1 and 2. As the only cruise ship in town, there was plenty of space to accommodate its nearly 12,000-foot-long profile. Ketchikan Mayor Bob Sievertson says its ability to easily fit is partially thanks to the spare roster of cruise ships this year. It may be more difficult during a very, very busy season, and so the timing and the placement of it is going to be even more of a challenge. But Ketchikan's up to the challenge, and I believe that we can manage that. Royal Caribbean Director of Destination Development Preston Carnahan says it took years of work and coordination to get a ship of this size here. He says one major part of that was removing a navigational hazard in the Tongass Narrows. That meant blasting a rock pinnacle located near Berth 2. By removing that rock, it basically makes a much safer waterway. And that was kind of in cooperation with everyone to bring bigger ships that have a deeper draft. The project finished up last year, but he says the pandemic halted any plans to send a ship of this class to Ketchikan. That is, until now. August 2nd was the first time the ship has docked in the city, and cruise director Dan Whitney says it's also the ship's first port of call in Alaska since the pandemic. It's exciting to get back because you, you just didn't know when, when that was going to happen. And for it to be happening now, it's almost surreal. It's not carrying paying passengers. This is a simulated voyage mandated by CDC guidelines. It's a dry run of sorts to show that pandemic mitigation protocols can be applied. Typically, the ovation of the seas can fit more than 4,000 passengers, but just under 600 were on the ship this time, says Carnahan. And he says it won't be stopping in Kajikan again this season. But I think today is is significant because it opens the door for the future of this class of ships to start coming to Ketchikan. And I think this class of ship is the future in Alaska. Carnahan says the preparation for this milestone is significant. It wasn't just the most recent changes, he says, but a legacy of them. It doesn't happen in a year, and Ketchikan and Ketchikanites have adapted over the last, say, five to ten years to make this happen. 
Ketchikan Mayor Bob Sievertson says the city will continue to adapt next year. There's no word on when this specific cruise ship will be back, but the city is looking ahead to a fuller season in 2022. That's not only if the pandemic eases, but also if more of these megaships come to town. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Molly Lubers. Ketchikan residents interested in running for local office, the filing period opened Monday. Paperwork is available through the City of Ketchikan and Ketchikan Gateway Borough Clerk's offices. Open seats in play for the October municipal election include City Mayor, now held by Bob Sievertson. So far, one challenger has emerged, Vice Mayor Dave Kiefer, who filed papers to run on Monday. Kiefer's term on the council expires in 2023. Should he be elected mayor, it would create another vacancy on the city council. There are also two seats open this year on the Ketchikan City Council. The three-year seats currently are held by Sam Bergeron and Jenna Lee Gage. Jay Matani, who ran for council last year, is putting his hat in the ring again. To qualify for city elected office, Register voters must be at least 18 years old and have lived inside Ketchikan city limits for at least one year. There are two open seats on the Ketchikan Gateway Borough Assembly, now held by Sven Westergaard and Felix Wong. Wong cannot run for re-election due to term limits. Three three-year seats are open on the Ketchikan Gateway Borough School Board. Those seats currently are held by Nicole Anderson, Kim Hodney, and Doug Gregg. The seat held by Greg was vacated by Sonia Scan earlier this year. The deadline to file for local elected office is 5 p.m. on August 25th. The election is October 5th. To qualify for the ballot, a petitioner must gather at least 10 signatures. For city elections, those voters must also live inside the city limits. For full disclosure, Jay Matani is a KRBD board member. While Sitka, like many places, is struggling right now with the Delta variant and an unexpected surge in coronavirus infections, over most of the last year, it got the pandemic right. Low infection rate and high support for vulnerable parts of the community. While there were some hard knocks along the way, Sitka proved to be a model of resiliency during the emergency, which is why around 80 policy researchers and government entities convened last Wednesday to listen as three Sitkins explained how it was done. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The party-ran Graduate School of Public Policy had its lens on Sitka prior to the pandemic. There's a just rightness to the community, something about its size, relative self-sufficiency, but relative isolation that makes it worthy of study. That was never more true than during the height of the pandemic when the Sitka Conservation Society, the Sitka Tribe, and the Sitka Legacy Foundation all helped to spearhead local relief efforts. Katie Riley, policy director for the Sitka Conservation Society, explained how her organization shifted gears and adapted some of its existing programs, like Fish to Schools, into a widespread food delivery system called Sitka Mutual Aid. She described many bureaucratic challenges in the program, not the least of which is that government-subsidized food programs tend to be top-heavy with industrial food producers. 
Riley recommended more investment in locally-based food security. We're on the ground dealing directly with the folks that these programs and funding sources are trying to help, and we can provide feedback when they're missing the mark, um, such as the delivering of weekly dairy boxes to populations that experience high levels of lactose intolerance here in Sitka. There were 80 audience members on the call, many from the party Rand Graduate School, but also a fair number from other universities, as well as representatives from government, including the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Food and Nutrition Services, the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the American Red Cross, and the Food Bank of Alaska. The Rasmussen Foundation, the state's largest philanthropy, moderated the call. Participants peppered Riley and her fellow Sitka panelists, Camille Ferguson and Robin Sherman, with questions about the resources available during the pandemic and how partnerships were formed to distribute them. Ferguson is the Economic Development Director for the Sitka Tribe. She said that while the STA's Social Services Department stepped up to increase services to tribal citizens during the pandemic, her role wasn't clear at first. Eventually, she began partnering with organizations in town to shelter homeless during the worst of the pandemic in local hotels and providing other agencies, like the Sitka Conservation Society, with mini-grants to expand their existing programs. We knew that we were going to be able to provide um, funding for those who are already doing um, existing services so that we wouldn't duplicate those services but, but support those services. In the middle of it all was the Sitka Legacy Foundation, one of a handful of grant funders in Sitka. The Legacy Foundation knew a lot about the individual capacity of Sitka's nonprofits to help during a crisis, but Director Robin Sherman said COVID required a team effort. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the two things that we did was we convened our nonprofits to say, what are you seeing among your clients and stakeholders and what do you need? And then we also, right at the very beginning, started talking to our city assembly and city administration and saying, when you are planning your municipal relief efforts, keep us in mind, both in terms of what we need and how we can help. The coordination ultimately led to the prompt and equitable distribution of $14 million in CARES Act funds toward everything from utility relief for households to direct payments to nonprofits and businesses. The takeaway message from the Sitka panelists was basically this. If Sitka is a model for government coordination, interagency communication, and community resiliency for the nation, that model could be improved. Camille Ferguson said that the pandemic brought food security into clear focus for the tribe. Pandemics and catastrophes are are something that we really need to be better prepared for, especially in an island community. The only way on and off this island is by boat or by plane. And we know now what can happen when the planes quit coming. Katie Riley was also blunt. The coronavirus pandemic is not likely to be the only crisis to be faced by communities in the near future. We at Sika Conservation Society don't really see this pandemic as an anomaly. We've seen what the future holds as we experience climactic change here in Sitka and the record wildfires and heat waves that have rocked the Pacific Northwest. Riley added that gathering feedback on programs early and often from communities and adapting them to better respond to local needs is really crucial for community resilience now and into the future. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. 
Alaska's state government has joined with other Republican-led states in asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. The 1973 decision found that there is a constitutional right to have an abortion. Alaska Attorney General Treg Taylor signed on to a filing in support of an appeal by Mississippi. The brief was filed by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. The appeal seeks to defend a Mississippi law that outlaws most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Lower courts struck down the law. New Hampshire is the only state with a Republican attorney general that did not sign the Texas filing. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion law could be determined at the state level. The Alaska Supreme Court has ruled that the right to privacy in the state constitution includes the right to an abortion as a fundamental right. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear the case in its term that begins in October. Taylor's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment on why he signed the brief. That's all for tonight's edition of the KRBD Evening Report. You can get the show as a podcast with your favorite podcast app, or you can get it on your smart speaker. Just ask it to play the KRBD Evening Report, or just ask it to play KRBD. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Maria Dudzak. Coming up next is All Things Considered, followed by Alaska News Nightly at 6, Poetry Lounge at 6.30, The Mindless Side of Town at 7, and Mountain Stage at 9.00.